All right, moment of transparency and self-confession. Look, do you ever order a diagnostic test or a therapeutic intervention, and the next morning you're like, wait, why did I do that? I don't think that was right. <laughs> and the truth is, I think we all do that from time to time. And if you've never done that, that's fantastic. You will. But this is why it's important to stay up to date. So in this podcast, we're going to cover the next most current list of SMFM don'ts. In other words, don't do these. And remember, this list first came out back in 2014. And they've been slowly revising it and then adding things back and forth throughout the years. The last major revision was in January of 2021. And now in March, as of March 10th, 2021, five additional don'ts were added to the list. So in this podcast, we're going to cover the SMFM most recent editions of the Don't Do These for OB Care. And this is going to be five of the last items put on the list again as of March 10th, 2021. Hi, I'm Caroline. Hi, I'm Jacob. And, and we, we are pre-med students, students at Texas A&M University. University. This, this is, is Clinical Pearls. All right, we are starting with number 16. Remember, we're doing the last five, the most recent additions to the list of choosing wisely from the SMFM. Number 16 is don't perform routine cell-free DNA screening for microdeletions. Cell-free DNA screening for the most common aneuploidies is associated with a high detection rate and low false positive rate. This screening test is also now offered for a small number of microdeletion syndromes. Most of these microdeletions are extremely rare. Given the very low prevalence of these conditions, SMFM reminds us that most positive test results will be false positive and the positive predictive value of the test is actually very low. Moreover, according to SMFM, data are lacking for the performance of microdeletion screening, which can add substantially to the cost of this test and increase anxiety for the patient. Next, number 17. Don't perform routine mid-trimester serum biomarker risk stratification for preterm birth or preeclampsia in asymptomatic patients. Routine mid-trimester biomarker risk stratification for preterm birth, like various cytokines and preeclampsia, like placental growth factor or PLGF, or soluble FMS like tyrosine kinase in asymptomatic pregnant women is not recommended due to the limited utility and the poor predictive value of these tests. Importantly, employing interventions like low-dose aspirin based on screening results have not shown to improve maternal or fetal outcome. Okay, now we have to clarify something here because we mentioned low-dose aspirin. But remember that that statement here is not about low-dose aspirin. It's actually a jab towards using these independent serum markers as a prediction tool for either preterm birth or preeclampsia. Now, don't get me wrong. There are serum biomarkers for both preterm labor and preeclampsia, very well published in the literature, like the ratio of placental growth factor to soluble FMS-like tyrosine kinase 1 that has shown an increased risk for preeclampsia development. But SMFM is not denying that. They're saying it's not yet ready for primetime general mass population screening. So remember, not a jab against low-dose aspirin or those independent uh, individual biomarkers that are real. It's just not ready yet for universal testing. 
By the way, remember as my disclosure, I'm a big fan of low-dose aspirin as long as you're not a contraindication because it does reduce the risk of preeclampsia better if we use it universally than relying on serum algorithms, I'm sorry, screening algorithms. And also remember that there is data that low-dose aspirin reduces preterm birth and extremely early preterm birth as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, that little beep, that little alarm that they put in my podcast, that just kind of sounds, it reminds me of the Hunger Games. I I don't don't know where that comes from. Maybe that's my own psychological issues. Next, number 18, don't recommend delivery in a non-diabetic patient for suspected macrosomia before 39 weeks and zero days. Recommendations regarding the optimal timing of delivery seek to balance maternal and perinatal risks. Delivery before 39 weeks and zero days has been associated with increased adverse perinatal outcomes compared with those at or beyond 39 weeks. For suspected macrosomia, the accuracy of estimated fetal weight using SONO and clinical assessments is inherently imprecise. In addition, the data comparing delivery to expected management for suspected macrosomia are inconsistent with regards to reducing the risk of shoulder dystocia, especially when weighed against the harms of early delivery. So given the imprecision in fetal weight assessments, the increase in adverse perineal outcomes, and the limited data demonstrating benefit, Delivery before 39 weeks of gestation is not recommended for suspected macrosomia in non-diabetic patients. Next, number 19, or number 4 on our list, don't routinely exclude women with two prior low transverse cesarean deliveries from having the choice to undertake a trial of labor after cesarean. Ooh, I know that makes some people nervous. Although in some studies, women with two prior cesarean deliveries who attempt a trial of labor after C-section have a higher rate of complications than women with one prior cesarean delivery, the absolute risk of any major complication remains low and the chance of achieving a vaginal birth are similar to those who have one prior cesarean. Given the risk of maternal morbidity and placenta accreta spectrum associated with repeat multiple cesarean sections, a trial of labor should remain an option for women with two prior low transverse cesarean sections. All right, now they're just messing with me because they stuck in that alarm again, right? Okay, here is number five or number 20 on the original list, which is, remember, list one to 20, but we're covering 16 to number 20, the last five that were added in just March 10th, 2021. And that's very easy. Don't perform third trimester GBS culture in patients with GBS bacteria during pregnancy. Now, that sounds so straightforward. You think we know that already? But I'm telling you, I've seen patients in L&D when I'm on for the hospitalist shift and I see GBS bacteria in the first trimester treated and then they get a culture in the third trimester. Uh, what? 
GBS bacteria at a level of 10 to the 5 CFU per ml or greater, either symptomatic or asymptomatic, warrants acute treatment during pregnancy and indicates the need for intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis at the time of birth. So, no additional rectovaginal culture later in pregnancy is necessary. Identification of asymptomatic bacteria with GBS during pregnancy at a level less than 10 to the 5 CFU per ml does not require maternal treatment during the antepartum period, but is an indication still for intrapartum prophylaxis at time of birth. And as a reminder, remember that in February of 2020, the ACOG pushed back or pushed down the time to do the GBS rectovaginal swab. It's recommended by the ACOG that all women whose vaginal rectocultures at 36 weeks and zero days to 37 weeks and six days who are positive for GBS should receive appropriate intrapartum prophylaxis unless a pre-labor cesarean section is performed in the setting of intact membranes. And remember, even if delivery seems quote, quote, eminent, still give that dose of antibiotics. Although a shorter duration of recommended intrapartum antibiotics is less effective than four hours or more of prophylaxis, two hours of antibiotic exposure has been shown to reduce GBS vaginal colony counts and decrease the frequency of clinical neonatal sepsis diagnoses. All right, we have reviewed the SMFM Choosing Wisely updated list of recommendations of what not to do in terms of OB care. This is covered number 16 through number 20. The last five just revised March 10th, 2021. I think it's a good idea to go back and probably cover number one through 15 because it's been some time that I've done that. And it's a good reminder that some things that sound good in practice are actually not evidence-based. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.